0: Hello, my brothers and sisters. Good morning to you, as Robert said, my name is Matt Doan. I have the privilege of opening the scriptures uh, together with you here this morning. I'm also a parent of one of those students going up to Hume Lake. There's two types of parents, maybe you're in this room or you're watching online or out in the courtyard, there's two types of parents that send their kids to camp. The first parent is, yes, (laughs) freedom, go. The second type of parent is running after the bus. Make sure you put on your sunscreen. Take all of your medication. I uh, confess to you, I am the second parent. Uh, My prayer for my eighth grade son now is that he would just have different clothes when I pick him up on Saturday than the clothes that he was wearing when he got on that bus uh, this morning. So parents, um, well done sending your kids. Either way, I know you love your kids and we're praying that Jesus meets them in a powerful, powerful way uh, this week. We're gonna be looking into 2 Timothy again. Wonderful book. Uh, Our theme is worth the risk. Jesus is worth the risk. Amen? Amen. And so we'll be diving into that today, chapter 3. Turn there in a moment. We're actually going to spend this week, next week, and the following week sitting, camping out here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But before we dive into God's glorious word, I do want to show you a photo of this. The scientific name of this is uh, Armadillidum. I probably butchered that, but... It's also known as a pill bug or a sow bug, or many of us know it as a? I heard a potato bug. Yeah, okay, that's out there too. But roly-poly is the name that I was going for. Uh, This is a phenomenal creature. It has seven sets of legs. It's actually not a bug. (laughs) It's a crustacean. It has gills that need moisture constantly. And just to kind of even reflect and think through who God is and his nature and his character, how cool is it that God in his mind and his creative power made that? (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Now, when a roly-poly is picked up by a three, four, or five-year-old, because that's who has such an eye for a roly-poly, right? It's all of our preschoolers. They have this like God-given gift to to search and seek and (laughs) destroy roly-polies. But when a little kid picks up a roly-poly, what does a roly-poly do? It rolls into a ball, kind of like this one right here. It's incredible. It's how it protects itself. I read way too much about roly-polies this week when I should have been reading the scriptures. but they actually that to, to keep in their moisture as well because when something touches it or, or grabs it, it takes away the moisture. So it rolls itself up. Now today we're going to be looking at the scriptures that describe that in the last days there will be difficult times. Don't you wish sometimes you were a roly-poly during those times? That you could just roll up into a ball and be protected from the evil external forces of this world. Today, we're going to soberly look at the idea, the truth, that these days will be tough. They will be difficult. You can count on it. But be encouraged. In the midst of difficult days, we can relate and know and speak and walk with the one who we sing about that is worthy, Jesus Christ. And in the midst of difficult days, evil has an expiration date, if you will, because of what Jesus has done. And so we're going to start this passage kind of heavy, but we're going to end on the glorious hope that we find in Jesus. So turn in your Bibles, New Testament book of 2 Timothy, it's after 1 Timothy. So if, you're, if you get stuck in 1 Timothy, you'll have a completely different message. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 is where we will camp out. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. You can find it on your phone. I am using the NASB translation if that helps you find it on your phone or, or the Bible that you have. 2 Timothy 3 verse 1, and I'll read all the way to 9, and it says this. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, slanderers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. Avoid such people as these. For among them are those who slip into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind, worthless in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their foolishness will be obvious to all, just as was that also of Janus and Jambres. Evil has an expiration date. This week when you are eating cereal or oatmeal and you're staring at the expiration date of your milk carton. Think about this. That although evil threatens to consume us and overwhelm us, and you just read these 19 characteristics of what people will act like in the last days, there will be an expiration to evil. But let's go back, verse 1. It says that evil days are ahead, that we should count on them, that we should expect them. Look at verse 1 here. But realize this in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, I love that we have this value here at Calvary Church to teach verse by verse through books of the Bible. Now, there's other ways to teach and there's good ways to teach, but I love that we do that here because it helps us not avoid difficult passages. I don't know how many of you would consider putting 2 Timothy 3:1 on your bumper sticker of your car. <laughs> or how many crusades would lead off with this verse. Or how many young adults have 2 Timothy 3:1 tattooed on their arm. <laughs> it's a difficult, discouraging, kind of sobering passage that in these days Difficult times will come. Frankly, I I don't necessarily even want to dwell on this verse. I'd rather talk about happy things. So why did Paul give this instruction, this warning, this reminder to Timothy? Well, he's passing on the leadership mantle to Timothy. And I believe he wants to make sure that Timothy is aware of what he's walking into, what he's stepping into. He wants to make sure that Timothy, when when he's leading the church and and times get difficult, that Timothy's not disillusioned, going, well, where did this come from? He wants to make sure that Timothy is not teaching other believers in Jesus that, hey, come to faith in Jesus and your life will be unicorns and lollipops. (laughs) You know, the Christian life is less like cotton candy And more like a jawbreaker. It's tough. It can be difficult to walk this life with Jesus Christ. And yet, let me add in parentheses, there's no better life. There's no better life. But Paul's warning Timothy here that these days will come and they'll be difficult days. What does he mean by last days? Well, there's a couple things that I think Paul's getting at. Last days, yeah, Book of Revelation stuff. Uh, the tribulation, when, when Christ comes, raptures the church, those will be difficult times, perilous times, persecuted times. We'll, we'll talk about that more next week. But if you look at the authors of the New Testament, they use last days a lot more broadly and generally. When the New Testament authors talk about the last days, they're basically talking about the post-resurrection season season. Of Jesus, They're talking about the church age. They're talking about when the Holy Spirit has come to dwell with all believers. They're talking about 80 33. They're talking about right now. And they're talking even about the future. So we can be guaranteed whatever season we're in. This isn't just a message for, for down at the end times. This is a message for now. The last days include now. And then verse 1 says, there'll be difficult times. Now, the original language for this is the same phrasing that would be used to describe when they would, in the first century, talk about wild animals or raging storms and seas. Or specifically, this wording of of difficult times was used in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, when it talks about the two demon-possessed men that were wandering around the tombs, and they were so angry and violent and out of their minds that no one could pass through that area. And so that's what this word is. It's it's not difficult times like, oh, I need a new car battery. I'm having a difficult day. (laughs) Or Starbucks didn't have the pastry that I wanted. (laughs) Maybe those are difficult things but this is a lot deeper and greater than that. In the last days, including right now, there'll be difficult times, gut-wrenching times, perilous times. It will not be easy to live this Christian life during these times. Think about when Paul is writing these words to Timothy. He's in jail, he's in prison. As he writes this letter, he is currently in prison, the probably the most notorious prison in all of Rome, steps away from the Roman Colosseum where he could be thrown to the lions at any minute. He's chained, not because he's a criminal and has broken some law, he's chained because of his faith and leadership in Jesus. And so he knows firsthand how difficult these days and times can be. And so he's warning Timothy of that. And so let this first verse just remind you, give you some sobriety here. Expect hard times. Expect difficult things in your Christian life. Don't be surprised by it. Now, some difficult things are because of natural occurrences. Uh, living in a broken, fallen world. Earthquakes. Praise God we haven't had a major one in a long time here. But tsunamis, storms, droughts. There, there's natural disasters that, that cause difficult days, particularly around the global world. But Paul is specifically in this passage, when he's thinking about these difficult days in the last days, he's thinking about people. He's thinking about what people will do to make these times difficult. He's thinking about the evil, the sinful things that people will do to one another. As verse 2 says, evil says this, it's all about me. Look at uh, 2 Timothy 3 verse 2. It says here that, For people will be lovers of self. And we can verify that that is happening in our time. Now, there's nothing wrong with healthy self-esteem. There's nothing wrong with having um, proper self-value and worth. We're we're sons and daughters of the king. There's nothing bad about self-care. Emotional, spiritual, physical self-care that allows us to be filled up so we can pour out to others. Paul's not getting at those type of things. Paul's getting at the selfishness that elevates myself over God. That says I'm more important than God. My needs, wants, and desires trump anything that God would call me to do. That's what it means to be a person that loves themselves. Think of the Greek mythology story of Narcissus who found his own reflection in the pond and was so captivated by himself that he ended up dying there. He couldn't walk away from from staring at himself. And think that this this Greek mythology story was written before Instagram <laughs> and the world of selfies. There was a book written a few years ago called The narcissism, narcissism Epidemic. It was written by two sociologists. And they wrote this book really as a warning to the world, saying that we kind of laugh about narcissism, but actually it is so dangerous. It's responsible for everything from depression to our debt. Narcissism is driving us to places that we could never imagine going, and our world is sick with it. We are lovers of self. Another book I looked at uh, calls uh, the current culture, the culture of the main character syndrome. What I mean by that, and here's a movie poster, is that our culture, people view themselves as the star of the show, the star of the movie. They have top billing. You know, so you see the actors' names up there? Robert Downey Jr., Terrence Howard, Jeff Bridges, Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, in our lives, we're the star. We have top billing in the movie of our lives, so to speak. When we walk into a room, we say, here we are. Rather than, there you are. We think everybody wants to know what we had for breakfast. And so we're good at taking photos of it and showing the world, or at least our friends. We live in a culture, in a society that loves themselves to their own detriment. And here in 2 Timothy 3, it lists 19 characteristics of of how this plays itself out. The first characteristics is to love yourself over God. And then it lists 18 more, and, and these are destructive, you guys. The first category, verses 2 through 4, talks about our external conduct, our, our immorality towards others. Verse 5 talks about the superficial spirituality of someone who loves themselves over God. And then verses 6 and 7 talk about how that actually impacts and hurts other people. Look at the list. It's helpful to look at this. It says here that people that love themselves over God love money. And, and I'm going to put some first-person descriptions next to each of these characteristics to even help it drive home for myself and for us. They're lovers of money, meaning I am greedy, I hoard, I do anything for a buck. I'm boastful, I brag, I compare myself to others, I I puff myself up over others. I'm arrogant, meaning I'm prideful, and I'm even defensive when it comes to any correction or, or input. I'm a slanderer, meaning I spread rumors and lies about others for my personal gain. I'm disobedient to my parents, meaning I don't listen to my parents. In fact, I actually blame them for all of my problems. I'm ungrateful, meaning I'm entitled. I'm too busy to stop and notice when when someone else has helped me. I'm unholy, I celebrate the profane and the ungodly. I'm unloving, I withhold love and and actually, I I actually hate other people. I'm irreconcilable, meaning I'm not willing to forgive or, or repair broken relationships. I'm a malicious gossip. I say, uh, I use my tongue to to tear down others, not to build them up. I have no self-control. I say yes to every impulse, and I have no restraint. I'm brutal. I step on others when they are down. I'm a hater of good, meaning I, I call the things that God says are good, bad, and the things that God says are bad, I call good. I'm conceited. I think my accomplishments are actually better than yours. I'm a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God. I live for gratification rather than living for God. In Paul's day, he had seen the worst in people. He had traveled all over the the world at that point. He'd seen all types of cultures and, and characteristics. Educated people, poor people, wise people. Vicious people, brutal people. He he describes in this list in the last days, people will love themselves and it will leak out in these ways. They'll be lovers of self. Verse 5 says they'll hold on to a form of godliness, although they'll deny its power. What Paul is warning Timothy about is there'll be people who will use God and even Christianity. For their own gain. They're not willing to submit to the name above all names, Jesus Christ. They're just using the name of Jesus for their own privileges and gain. Verse 5 continues it says, Avoid such people as this. Don't have anything to do with them. Now, this is a little confusing for me because throughout the scripture we hear this idea of Jesus saying, Go into the world. Build relationships with sinners so that you can point them towards me, Jesus. And so I believe Paul here, when he says avoid such people, he's not saying don't build relationships with sinners. What he's saying is don't endorse this type of behavior. Don't look at this type of behavior in the church or even externally outside the church and nod your head and say, that's just part of the times. No, we're to look at this and say, yeah, this this is why in the last days life will be difficult because people love themselves over God. I will will not endorse that. And then verse 6 and 7 goes on to say this, and this part is sobering for me. It will be for you too. It says, for among them, there are those who slip into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Now, please hear me. This is not Paul. This is not the scripture calling women weak. <laughs> women, just, just lower your blow darts for a minute. <laughs> There's a little bit of cultural context here. You see, in the first century, where Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, women primarily were not included in education. So women typically did not know how to read or how to write here in the first century. And so what a wealthy woman would do, a woman who had money, is she would hire a private tutor, a man, to educate her to teach her how to read or write. And so in the first century, as people are coming to know Jesus, as they're placing their trust in Jesus, as they're joining this movement called The Way, some of these first century women who had hired tutors to educate them are now hiring religious leaders to educate them in the ways of God. And yet, the tutors that they're finding have nothing really to do with Jesus, and everything to do with what's described here of being a selfish person. And they're laying, or, or they're they're taking these women who had hired them to tutor them spiritually, and these women are being led astray. It says here that they're piling sins on them. Basically, what I can guess from that is they're saying, "Well, yeah, Jesus can forgive you for some things, but not everything." You need to do this, this, and this. And so Paul is calling these type of false Christians out. He's warning these women, be careful of who you're learning from, who you're inviting in to speak truth to you. It very well could be someone who loves themselves over God. John Stott was a theologian from the other side of the pond Incredible author, pastor came across this quote of his from one of his books, "And I really loved it. I want you to see it for yourselves. It says this: "We're to love God first, our neighbor second, and ourselves last." If we reverse that order, and that, that's what 2 Timothy 3 is talking about, that order is reversed, you love yourself first. If we reverse that order and love ourselves first and God last, our neighbor in the middle is bound to suffer. Don't you agree with that? Isn't that true? The women described here in verses 6 and 7 suffered because their tutors loved themselves over God, we have a a trail of people both in the church, meaning like global church, but even maybe here at Calvary, and in our neighborhoods and nations who have suffered at the hands of a selfish person, even been spiritually abused by a person in authority. Oh, that should sober us to think that any of us are capable of such things, that any of us have experienced that type of hardship and suffering at the hands of another. It should break our hearts that in these last days there are such selfish people. But it also should break our hearts that not only are we capable ourselves of this type of selfishness, but if you look at this list here in 2 Timothy 3, none of us is innocent. Agree? (laughs) All of us have fallen into elevating ourselves above God and we have a wake behind us of damage. But here's the good news. Evil does not have the final say. Evil does not have the final say. Good old Billy Graham says it like this. I've read the last page of the Bible. It's going to turn out all right. <laughs> it's a simple way of saying it, but it's true. Paul gives Timothy a case study in verse 8. If you want, you can turn over there to Exodus chapter 7, but keep your finger in Second Timothy 3 because we'll go kind of quickly. This case study of Janus and Jambres mentioned here in uh, verse 7 and 8, or 8 I should say. We, We don't see their names mentioned in other places in the Bible, but we know from tradition that Janus and Jambres are the magicians, the spiritual priests or whatever you want to call it, of Egypt in Pharaoh's court. And so in Exodus 7, Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh considers for a moment, but then his heart gets hardened. And so another plague falls on him and the people. Moses comes to Pharaoh here in chapter 7 of Exodus. And Aaron comes with him. And Aaron takes his staff and throws it down and it becomes a serpent, becomes a snake. It's this incredible, crazy story. And Pharaoh then calls his magicians, these kind of spiritual priests, Janus and Jambres, as they're known later in history. And they take their staffs and they throw them on the ground and their staffs turn into snakes. But then the text is so good. I love the Bible. You should just love the Bible for all the nuances, details it gives. Exodus seven says that Aaron's staff that turned into a snake, it actually ate Janice and Jambres' staffs. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? It just gobbles up their snakes. Snake war, God wins. <laughs> and so Janice and Jambres, their little hocus pocus is exposed. But then later on in Exodus seven, Moses hits the Nile; it turns to blood, and so Pharaoh calls his guys Janus and Jambres again, and they also perform a a similar feat. They turn the Nile into blood, but then they can't reverse it. It'd almost be like a magician who locks himself up and then says, "I can get out," but then gets stuck. (laughs) Janus and Jambres are exposed. Their foolishness and their folly is exposed. They demonstrate this superficial power, but it really doesn't last. And that's what Paul is getting at when he refers to them here in chapter 3. That there will be people in these last days who love themselves. And there will be all this damage that's caused because of that. But like Janus and Jambres, these men will be exposed. Verse 9... Evil will be exposed and stopped. It says specifically this, but they will not make further progress. Eric Wakeling assigns uh, each of us that teach our passages uh, months in advance. And I appreciate him doing that. Trust him in how he divvies those up. And he gave me 2 Timothy verse chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And so I didn't remember it, so I, I looked up at it, looked, looked it up, and I go, Oh great. <laughs> I have to teach this in July. Like in the last days there'll be difficult times and then all these evil characteristics of selfish people. Have a great July day. <laughs> but then I came to this verse, verse nine. That won't make further progress. You know, evil, selfish people, they can get away with it for a while. But as we see with our celebrity pastors, our celebrity politicians, our celebrity actors, eventually evil and selfishness is exposed, isn't it? Eventually it all comes to light. At times it can feel like, oh, the church is being overwhelmed both within and without with such evil and selfishness, like how will it ever survive? Let me point you back to Jesus' words in Matthew 16. Let's look at the screen. And upon this rock, Jesus is speaking to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it, amen? Amen. amen. This isn't some roly-poly moment where we're just ignoring evil. Jesus has the final say. Evil has an expiration date. How do I know that? Well, the scriptures talk about it. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says it like this. Paul says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now notice Paul doesn't say here, Jesus will rescue me from prison. We know that Paul most likely died in that prison cell. Jesus is not offering you a cotton candy life full of no problems, easy living, Hawaiian vacations, 365 days a year. No, the last days will be difficult. They're selfish people. Starts with within. And yet, evil and selfishness will not overcome the church. And because of what Jesus has done on the cross, shedding his blood, dying on the cross, being stuck into a grave, but then rising again, overcoming death, conquering sin, evil has an expiration date. And evil has an expiration date in you and I. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, evil and sin in our lives is crucified on the cross. Does that mean that we'll never be selfish again? Sadly, no. Ask your spouse. (laughs) But as we're being turned and transformed to look more like Jesus, we know that we have godliness with power. Verse 5 here in 2 Timothy 3 says, there was people who were selfish, loving themselves above God. They had a form of godliness without power. When you submit your life to Jesus, when he becomes the savior, the leader of your life, you have godliness with power. Allows you to live that transformed life. John Stott again says it so beautifully. He says this, the gospel provides a way out of being self-centered. It promises a new life, new birth, which involves being transformed from self-centered to God-centered. It's a process though, right? It happens immediately when we place our faith in Jesus. We're, we're transferred into the kingdom of light through Jesus. But the process of spiritual growth, it, it takes a while. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. As we courage and push each other on. But then when God is first and our self is last, we love the world God loves and we seek to give and to serve like him. That is our goal, our mission here at Calvary Church. It's kind of like salmon. <laughs> Last month, Marie and I had the privilege to go to Seattle for her cousin's wedding, and after the wedding, we went up to um, Mount um, Olympic uh, National Park. It's incredible up there. We got to see the spot where salmon actually go upstream to spawn. It's just like phenomenon where they, they travel miles and miles to literally go upstream, to go countercultural. Everything else is going this way and these salmon are going that way. That should describe our Christian lives. The entire world and culture is loving themselves and going this way. As followers of Jesus, empowered by him, we are going that way. And pointing people to Jesus in the process. Maybe your marriage is one where you're the only believer in Jesus. What would it look like if you were a spouse who loved God over self, who loved generosity over greed, who was humble, not boastful, who took correction wasn't arrogant, who spoke truth and not slander, who honored parents, who was thankful and not ungrateful who walked and celebrated holiness, not the profane, who loved people unconditionally, who forgave and reconciled, who used their tongue to build up others, who cared for the downtrodden, who practiced self-control, who thought well of others and wasn't conceited and loved God over pleasure. Do you think your spouse would notice that? Wow. Imagine one of your coworkers you see him every day in fact you see him so much you might see him some weeks more than you see your own family Imagine that that coworker places their faith in Jesus and they're transformed by Jesus from being a lover of self to a lover of God. And that coworker now loves God over self, loves generosity over greed, is humble, not boastful, takes corrections, not arrogant, speaks truth, not slander, honors their parents, is thankful, not ungrateful, walks and celebrates holiness, not the profane, forgives and reconciles, uses their tongue to build up others, practices self-control, cares for the downtrodden and loves good, not evil, thinks well of others, isn't conceited, loves God over pleasure. Wow. you think that coworker would make a difference in the office? Imagine your life group leader. What if they were known, their characteristics were known as a person who loved God over themselves, who loved generosity over greed, was humble, not boastful, took correction, wasn't arrogant, Spoke truth, wasn't slanderous. Honored their parents. Was thankful, not ungrateful. Walked and celebrated holiness, not the profane. Loved people unconditionally. Forgave and reconciled easily. Used their tongue to build up others. Cared for the downtrodden. Loved good, not evil. Thought well of others. Wasn't conceited. And loved God over pleasure. That's our vision. So be expectant of difficult times. They're coming. They're here. But be encouraged. Evil has an expiration date thanks to Jesus. Let's let him transform our lives. Let's live as salmon, cross-cultural, counter-cultural. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God we look to. That we don't just look within like the Disney movies tell us to do, but we look to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the Alpha and the Mega, the first and the last, the risen Savior. So, God, may you transform us to look more like you. Challenge us in places where we've gone with the flow, we've gone with the crowd. May we truly live countercultural. We pray this in Christ, amen.